Seeking the Extraordinary is sponsored by The Colony Group, a national wealth and business management company that seeks the extraordinary by pursuing an unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about how The Colony Group manages beyond money, visit thecolonygroup.com. Welcome, fellow seekers of the extraordinary. Welcome to our shared quest. Quest not for a thing, but for an idea. Quest not for a place, but into deep, inner, unexplored regions of ourselves. A quest to understand how we can achieve our fullest potential by learning from others who have done or are doing exactly that. Extraordinary stories of overcoming anguish. Every single one of them had lost somebody from their family. I will never give up on trying to lessen that conflict. People who have stood up to challenges with true courage. Do something in life that, that you have a passion for, something that you enjoy and you find fulfilling. That's where you have your greatest success. Stories that will enlighten and inspire. What I said to him is absolutely a cliche, but the journey is more important than the end result. May we always have the courage and wisdom to learn from those who have something to teach. Join me now in Seeking the Extraordinary. I'm Michael Nathanson, your Chief Seeker of the Extraordinary. On our show today, we have a guest that just might blow your mind with his latest work. I read it several days ago, and I'm still not sure that I can fully appreciate its broad implications, at least not consciously, but we'll get to that. Before I introduce our esteemed guest, I need to do something a bit different, and I feel great sadness about it. At the top of our show, you heard the familiar voice of our Seeking the Extraordinary announcer. That voice belongs to the great Lisa Poff who recently appeared in our show as a guest. During that episode, which has been listened to by many people who have since reached out to express how moved they were, Lisa spoke about her brave battle with pancreatic cancer. She told us to never let fear get in the way of opportunity and to embrace our failures. And she offered an unforgettable perspective on hope even while living with a terminal illness. My friends, I'm heartbroken to tell you that only 16 months after her diagnosis, Lisa has passed away. Her family, friends, and colleagues, including me, are devastated, even though we all knew that the odds were against her. I attended Lisa's memorial service and oddly found it as uplifting as it was sad. Lisa affected so many people in the most positive of ways, and the love that she leaves behind will endure for generations to come. For our part, we have honored Lisa in several ways that are personal to us and to her. But we are also launching a scholarship in her name called the Lisa Poff Bold and Brilliant Scholarship. Goodbye, my dear friend. Okay. With that important announcement made, we need to now turn our attention to today's guest. Now, to make things simple, I'll start by saying that our guest is a neurologist, academic, and prolific researcher and writer. Now, here are just some of the details of his spectacular resume. He is a professor of neurology at Boston University School of Medicine 
and a lecturer in neurology at Harvard Medical School. He is the chief of cognitive and behavioral neurology, director of the Center for Translational Cognitive Neuroscience, and associate chief of staff for education at the Veterans Affairs, or VA, Boston Healthcare System. He is also Associate Director and Outreach, Recruitment, and Engagement Core Leader at the Boston University Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. And he's a member of the American Academy of Neurology, the Mem- Memory Disorders Research Society, and American Neurological Association. A graduate of Haverford College and Harvard Medical School, our guest has published over 150 papers and book chapters on clinical and cognitive neuroscience aspects of Alzheimer's disease, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, other dementias, and normal aging. He has co-authored or edited eight books, including two that were written especially for us lay people, Seven Steps to Managing Your Memory, and Six Steps to Managing Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia. His most recent paper, Consciousness as a Memory System, published in the Cognitive and Behavioral Neurology Journal, will be a main focus of today's discussion. Our guest is on the Medical and Scientific Advisory Committee of the Alzheimer's Association of Massachusetts and New Hampshire. He won the Norman Geshwin Prize in Behavioral Neurology in 2008, and the Research Award in Geriatric Neurology in 2009, both from the American Academy of Neurology. Our guest is also a close and longtime friend of your host. Please welcome the extraordinary Andrew Budson. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Now, it's great to have you. And, uh, Andrew, I, I usually like to start these interviews by giving my guests a chance to talk a bit about themselves as a complete person. So why don't we begin with you telling us about yourself in whatever form makes sense for you? Yeah. So I, I like all of us, have a lot of different roles, but I really think of myself first and foremost as a father to my two children, a husband to my wife, Amy, a son to my parents, uh, a friend to many, a physician to all my patients. And I'm particularly passionate about my mentorship roles, both at the VA and the other institutions that I, that I work at, and my roles as a teacher and an educator. It's another real passion of mine. And of course, also as a scientist, and more recently in the last 10 years or so as a writer. Thank you. Now, before we get to the extremely interesting theories of your most recent paper, and I really do want to spend as much time as possible talking about that because I just think our audience will be fascinated. I certainly am. Let's talk briefly about a couple of your books. So will you offer us a summary of uh, the, the two that you said that you wrote for, uh, for the lay people, for, for everyone, I think is the way you, you, you talked about it on your, uh, your website. Will you offer us a summary of seven steps to managing your memory and six steps to managing Alzheimer's disease and dementia? Absolutely. So seven steps to managing your memory, what's normal, what's not, and what to do about it, is the book I wrote for the individual who's getting a little bit older, who has noticed some changes in their thinking and memory, are trying to figure out, is this just normal aging? Is this something else? Could this be the start of Alzheimer's disease? And either way, what can they do 
to help keep their thinking and memory as strong as possible. And the six steps to managing Alzheimer's disease and dementia, a guide for families, that book is written for the families of individuals who are really somewhere in the middle of Alzheimer's disease or another form of dementia, and they want to be the best family members, care partners, caregivers to their loved ones as much as possible. I do want to mention that we also have a new book coming out on February 1st, but but available for pre-order now titled Why We Forget and How to Remember Better, The Science Behind Memory. And this book is really for anyone of any age, from high school students to grandparents, who's interested in using our current understanding of how memory works to really maximize their memory abilities. Great, great. And are all your books available on Amazon? Are they hard to get? They are easy to get. They're on Amazon, and I always love to support our local bookstores. So please, if you have one in your town, check out the books from there. Great. I have to ask a question that I suspect is on many people's minds and, 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 and that is, I'm just going to come right out with it and just ask, this is probably a question you get, you get a fair amount, but is there anything we can proactively do to ward off Alzheimer's and dementia? It, it, the answer is absolutely yes. And it's actually been estimated by the World Health Organization that 40% of all dementias could be prevented. And there's two very simple keys. You want to take care of your body and you want to take care of your mind. So to take care of your body, as you well know, Mike, that includes exercise, particularly aerobic exercise, Mediterranean menu of foods, Mm -hmm. keep a healthy weight, and make sure you get adequate sleep. And then in terms of taking care of your mind, the number one most important thing is to stay engaged and participate in social activities. Our brains did not evolve to doing computer games, crossword puzzles, Sudoku. They evolved for social interactions. And it's when we're in a social interaction that the whole brain is lighting up and active. Doing novel cognitive activities has also been shown to be important. And believe it or not, keeping a positive mental attitude about aging and life in general is important. And we believe the reason a positive attitude is important, it's for all the obvious reasons. We're more likely to take care of ourselves, eat right and exercise with a positive attitude, and we're more likely to be social and outgoing if we have a positive attitude. You, I, I can't help but, but just follow up on that, on that answer. You, you mentioned crossword puzzles and other, other games and puzzles. Are you addressing the common perception that doing crossword puzzles and similar activities, quote, keeps us sharp and could therefore ward off these kinds of problems? Right. So the studies show that if you spend time doing crossword puzzles in Sudoku, you will get better. At crossword puzzles in Sudoku, it just does not translate to overall uh, brain health. It needs to be something novel, something that stretches yourself. But having said that, it has been proven just recently with a couple of articles that came out in 2022 that watching TV is actually bad for you. So 
doing crossword puzzles, although they may not be better than a social activity, I think it has been proven they are better than watching TV. <laughs> okay, so well, that's good to know. I'm not sure that means for me personally, though. Okay, so I'm going to ask you one more question, then we're going to get into your paper about consciousness as a memory system. You're a prominent Alzheimer's researcher. And, uh, and when I say prominent, uh, I'd say to my guests, look them up and you'll see what I mean. Where are we now in terms of more promising therapies? And how far away are we from a cure? Will, will we see a cure in our lifetime? Sorry for the, uh, the multi-part question. Yeah. So the first thing I want to say to everyone is that the current treatment for Alzheimer's disease, these work. And they can turn the clock back on Alzheimer's disease and the memory loss it has by 6 to 12 months. And as long as they had that initial response, it's going to continue working two, three, four years later. It's not a miracle drug, but it really does work. But are there new things coming out? Uh, There are. So there was actually a recent press release which, if it's accurate, suggests that we may have real disease-modifying treatments that can slow this disease down in as little as 12 months. And we will know more when the data associated with this press release are revealed at a conference this December. So we'll find out more information. Okay. So let's now move into your latest work. And, uh, and why don't we just start by you telling us about your, your paper. We're going to get into the details, but maybe just offer, you know, sort of the general concept or concepts. And, and you wrote it with a couple of colleagues, right? Yes, uh, absolutely. So uh, one of them is actually a friend of mine that I met when I was at Haverford College, and he and I were philosophy uh, majors uh, together. His name is Ken Richmond. And Ken got a Ph.D. in philosophy and now teaches at the Massachusetts College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences in the Mm -hmm. Longwood Medical Area. Mm -hmm. And he and I have kept in touch. And the other is Elizabeth Kensinger. And I actually began working with Elizabeth when I was a postdoctoral fellow working in Dan Schachter's lab. And she was an undergraduate at Harvard. And she actually taught me how to do my first experiment. And I could tell, even then when she was an undergraduate, that she was just an absolutely outstanding individual. And she went on to get a PhD in psychology and neuroscience at MIT. And she's now professor and chair of the psychology and neuroscience department at uh, Boston College. And she, in fact, is the co-author of that Why We Forget and How to Remember Better uh, book. Hmm. Okay. And the general premise of your, yeah. of, your, of your paper? Yes, absolutely. So the idea is that we argue in this paper that consciousness is difficult to understand because everybody is, has been sort of looking to understand, well, how does consciousness sort of enable us to directly act in the world? And what we have done is we've sort of changed the question in the following sense. And we draw an analogy to our understanding of memory, which has also been recently sort of reinterpreted. So for many years, you know, we have always thought that the purpose of our memory 
is to remember information verbatim. And because of this, I'm going to say misunderstanding, I think all of us, I certainly have felt that like my memory is letting me down all the time. You know, I'm trying to remember something and I can't remember that or I remember it wrong and other things that I have no interest in remembering, they keep coming to mind. You know, what's going on? This memory system is terrible. But what we learned in the memory field about 15 years ago is the purpose of our memory is not actually to remember things verbatim. The purpose of our memory is to using prior memories, using our store of facts and knowledge to flexibly, creatively combine our memories, envision different possible future outcomes, and then work to make the future outcome come about that we want. So that's actually what our memory is for. And what we argued in this paper is that consciousness is an essential part of this memory system. So that in essence, consciousness is not a sort of a separate thing in itself. It's part and parcel of our memory system. In fact, we argue that consciousness is the part of uh, memory that allows us to flexibly and creatively combine memories and plan for the future. All right, we're going to unpack that some more because that's an awful lot for us to absorb. But we're going to we're going to get into this. And uh, and to my guests, I I assure you, as we continue this discussion, you're going to hear some things, and it's just going to blow your mind. It certainly has blown my mind thinking about. That. I'd also like to point out to our guests that this paper, Consciousness as a Memory System, is written in a way that we lay people can, can read and understand it. So I, I do recommend. So let's get into some of these central theories. You argue, you actually argue for the very case for why consciousness developed in the first place. And it has something to do with what you call episodic memory, right? So tell us about that. Yeah, exactly. So the idea is that Episodic memory is memory for the episodes of our life. So if you think about, you know, what you had for dinner uh, last night, you're using your episodic memory. And we contrast episodic memory, memories for episodes of your life, from a few other types of memory. We think of memory for facts and knowledge. We call that semantic memory, referring to meaning, so memory for, for meaning of things. We also have working memory. That's memory that we are holding information online and manipulating it. And so all of these different types of memory are tied together because they're all, number one, explicit, Consciousness is critical for all of these different types of memory. And so when I talk about consciousness being a memory system, what I mean is that consciousness is the system that is involved in all of these types of memory. Our memory for uh, recent episodes of our life, our memory for facts and knowledge, and our memory for things that we're holding in mind. Okay. 
So that I can, I can, I can uh, understand and hadn't really thought about it, obviously, since it's not my field, but, but I get it and really interesting. You go on to argue that, and this is a quote, we do not consciously perceive events directly in real time. We perceive the world as a memory. So we unconsciously experience the world and then we remember a split second later. Does that mean I'm speaking with you right now and this is real, but my perception of that is really just a memory? Yes, that's actually (laughs) what what we argue. And when I say perception, I mean like that you're consciously perceiving it, you're perceiving it in a way that your conscious mind can, can think about it. And when it comes to perception, I think the, the best sort of example I can give you is that, you know, when you and I were growing up and we would go and watch a movie, the movie was actually on film and was made up of little still frames. But when we watched the movie, we didn't experience a bunch of little still frames. We experienced continuous motion. Mm-hmm. And the thing that is um, interesting about this is if I showed you an individual still frame for the amount of time that it was on the screen by itself, you would have no difficulty in perceiving that still image. And then if I showed you, you know, another image, you know, 100 milliseconds, 200 milliseconds later, you would see another still images. Mm-hmm. And we have the perceptual ability to, or the the, uh, sensing ability through our eyes and our our visual cortex to actually see individual frames. But we don't actually see individual frames. We see continuous motion. And the understanding as to why that's the case is that when the later image comes, our brain actually interpolate, you know, let's say an arm that's moving forward, you know, at various different points. And instead of seeing jerky images, we see a smooth, continuous motion because our brain is used to perceiving real events in the real world. And so the way it makes sense of something that jumps is it says it must be continuous. And that's why we see things uh, continuously. So, and in the field of experimental psychology, there's all sorts of interesting phenomena like this that just don't really make any sense if we're actually perceiving things in real time. And one of the things that's just really cool about this concept is that after we submitted our paper, an Australian researcher, Heinz uh, Hogendorf, who studies perception, not memory, he actually came to the same conclusion that in his words, there's no natural boundary between perception and memory. And, 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 and you basically are saying that it's the same for decision-making, right? I mean, so are we not consciously making our own decisions. Right. So we argue in this paper that we actually make decisions unconsciously and then we sort of fool ourselves into thinking that we consciously made uh, these decisions. Yeah, I actually want to just, just as, as, a, as a quick aside and just to make sure that I'm getting the terminology right, I, I'm noticing your language, and I think I noticed it in the paper, you, you, you refer to unconsciously. Is that different from subconsciously? Is the right word unconsciously? 
You know, I think of these two words as subconscious and unconscious as as basically the same. Okay. I, I don't think of them as, as different. Okay. Okay. So you're effectively arguing in your paper that we don't consciously make our decisions, at least not consciously. And you state that, quote, decisions and actions are fundamentally occurring through unconscious brain processes. So can you just maybe just articulate a little bit more the thinking around that? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, the first thing I want to say is that, you know, we, we are absolutely not the first to argue that a lot of human decisions and actions are occurring through these unconscious brain uh, processes. So we talk about in the paper this distinction between system one fast unconscious decisions that are being made versus system two slow deliberative conscious decisions that are being made. And this system one, system two distinction was made famous by the work of Kahneman and Tversky, two psychologists who actually won the Nobel Prize in economics uh, for this work. Hmm. So they argued, and we agree, that the vast majority of actions that we perform and decisions that we make occur unconsciously using our system one processes. So if I asked you, you know, what's two plus two, you would instantly say four without thinking about it Mm -hmm. with your system one processes alone. And these are also the processes that allow you, for example, to like drive home on a routine, you know, traffic situation while completely engrossed in a conversation with a friend so that you might not, e- not even remember your drive home. But if I asked you, you know, for something complicated like what's 27 times 13, or if you were driving in a snowstorm, you know, then you're absolutely going to engage your system to conscious mind. So the idea is that your conscious mind, system two in Kahneman Tversky's terminology, it comes about whenever we need to use our full conscious mental abilities to make the best decision in action. But we absolutely argue in the paper that at the end of the day, it is your unconscious brain processes that are actually deciding and actually acting. And, you know, this is the reason we argue that usually we all make the logical, rational decision that our conscious minds come to. But sometimes we do not. And if I ask you, like, well, Mike, you know, why, why did you end up making that decision? You might say something like, you know, it just didn't feel right. And I would argue that's essentially you're describing, you know, your unconscious brain processes who felt it wasn't the right decision. That's just fascinating. I mean, what are, what are the, uh, the implications in terms of thinking about free will? I mean, do I not have free will? Am I really just being guided by a bunch of internal circuits inside my brain? Well, it, it is an interesting uh, question, this whole problem of, of free will. And the problem of free will is really the problem uh, of determinism. And determinism would argue that at a microscopic scale, all of the neurons, the brain cells that are working, whether or not they're related to conscious or unconscious activity, All of these neurons can be reduced to electrical, chemical, physical reactions following natural laws. 
And our theory actually doesn't have any specific implications for this problem of determinism. I view determinism as problematic for uh, free will, whether our decisions are being made consciously or unconsciously. But as you know, we have a little section in the paper on free will, Mm -hmm. and we state, and I firmly believe that, you know, we really must act as if we have free will. I just don't think we could live in a society where people are acting otherwise. Right. You could use that as an excuse, but but still the, the, you know, the concept does, it just requires a lot of thought. And yes, you know, you, you do address this in your paper. I just really wanted to hear you speak yeah, about it and certainly share that thinking with our audience. And you also, you know, speaking about what's in the paper, one of the central questions that you ask, and I know you're a practitioner yourself, is you, you, you ask questions like, why is mindfulness so difficult for, for us? And you suggest that we might have answers in your paper. Why is mindfulness difficult? Why are, why are acts like going on a diet and staying on a diet difficult for us? Yeah, you know, a- absolutely. These two issues, why is mindfulness difficult? Why is it difficult for so many people to diet? Were actually key insights that helped us to develop this theory. So if you think about if if you argue that your actions are simply under the control of your conscious mind, then you should simply be able to decide, well, I'm going to have just one spoonful of ice cream and then I'm going to put the container back in the freezer. But we all know that that doesn't always happen, you know. So why doesn't that happen? Well, I, I actually think it's a bit of evidence that we don't directly, consciously control our actions. And the other thing that I think is so interesting is whether it's ice cream or other activities, I think we have all occasionally had the experience that we see ourselves doing something and we are saying to ourselves, as we're doing it, I shouldn't be doing this. I know (laughs) I shouldn't be doing this, but yet we're still doing this. And with mindfulness, right, it's like, it's like, Aren't our thoughts under our control? Why is it hard for me to focus my attention on my breath? How come my thoughts keep wandering away? And the fact that it's hard to control our actions in terms of things like dieting, the fact that it's hard to actually control my thoughts when I practice mindfulness, this was a big important clue that helped us to realize that at the end of the day, it's our unconscious brain processes that are controlling these things. Mm. <laughs> just, just amazing. One analogy that you use in your paper that I thought was, was helpful in terms of my layperson's brain understanding this, and I guess I have to ask, you know, was I reading it? Was, my, or was I unconsciously reading it? <laughs> I'm not really sure. But, but one, one analogy that you use is that of a horse and its rider. And I'd like to have you elaborate on that. And then, you know, you also, one thing I didn't disclose in my, in my description of your bio is that you share my love of science fiction and, uh, and fantasy Absolutely. and reading and movies. And so you, of course, can't help but reference the Matrix movie. So talk a little bit about the Matrix and this concept of a horse and a rider. Yeah, absolutely. So let, let's take the Matrix first. So the reason that I think 
the movie The Matrix is so powerful is that two of its central uh, metaphors resonate with us because I think they actually portray reality. And the first one is that the world is actually made up of massive streams of complex data that our brains are processing in parallel. You know, in The Matrix, it's that those wonderful right. green lines of, of glyphs or characters that are, that are streaming uh, down. And I think, you know, that's really what our, our brain is sensing in terms of raw data. And the second is that we are not actually experiencing the world or acting in the world directly. It just appears uh, that way. And I think we all feel that way from time to time. And I think that's why movies like The Matrix or going back a couple thousand years, Plato's Allegory of the Cave, I think this is why these metaphors are so powerful. So regarding the horse and rider, I do think it's a, it's a good way to understand this, this theory. So I think about the horse as our unconscious brain processes, and the rider is our conscious mind. And just like you don't need to tell a horse how to walk across a rocky field or how to jump over a short uh, wall, you know, you just tell the horse where you want to go and the horse will take you there. But you obviously need the rider in order for the horse to do any, I'll say, productive work. You know, if you want that horse to go from Oklahoma City to San Francisco, it's not going to get there on its own uh, mm -hmm. without the rider, right? And, you know, the rider is going to be able to know the way to go because the rider's got these cool sunglasses on. And these sunglasses are really pretty cool. They have episodic memory to allow you to review episodes in the past. They have semantic memory, your entire store of facts and knowledge. They have working memory, which allows you to manipulate these different scenes and move things around, almost like you're a movie director moving around scenes on a storyboard and trying different uh, things out. And that's how the writer knows this is going to be the best path to go from Oklahoma City to San Francisco. And so then the rider then communicates this information to the horse, and the horse goes that direction. Now, just like a real horse and rider, although the rider tells the horse where they want to go, at the end of the day, the horse decides, yeah. right? You know, the rider can say, let's go down this ravine. And the horse is like, no way. I'm going up over the hill. I'm not going down in the ravine. At the end of the day, the horse decides. <laughs> really interesting. And would I be pushing my luck if I asked you if deja vu is, in fact, a glitch in the matrix? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure that's exactly <laughs> Different what Different paper? Is. Okay. Was it the uh, same cat? That's, that's the question. <laughs> that is the question. Okay. And and. and Consciousness actually goes even further, you argue. You know, what's the, the, the relationship between consciousness on the one hand and you, you talk about language, problem solving, abstract thinking on the other? Yeah. So one of the reasons I think that this theory of consciousness as a memory system hasn't been sort of put forth before 
is when we think about the common sense view of consciousness, we often associate it with these other activities which aren't sort of memory-related per se. Mm -hmm. But we argued in the paper that it began, consciousness began as part of the memory system, but then it did take on these other activities. And ultimately, we argue that these are all memory-based activities. So let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. So let's say you're feeling hungry. And you think about uh, some berries that you would like to eat that you had seen previously when you were walking by a cave. And you're like, okay, so I'm going to go to the cave and and get some berries next door. But then you also think, "Uh uh-oh, but another time I walked by this cave, there was a bear that came out and chased me. And so then we have these two different memories that are episodic memories that we put into our working memory and we can put them side by side and think, okay, so I know that the berries are near the cave, but there's also a bear in the cave. And the problem solving comes in when one says, well, how am I going to be able to bring about the future that I want, which is that I'm going to pick the berries and avoid the future that I don't want, which Mm -hmm. is I'm going to be chased by uh, the bear. And basically, we think that's how problem solving develops. Language and abstract reasoning comes about when we want to communicate with other people. So we say, well, one way that we could get the berries and avoid being, you know, eaten by the bear is if I bring a buddy with me and, you know, one of them can distract the bear and run away while the other one of us picks all of the berries. And in order to do that, I'm going to have to communicate this information to my friend and basic language would develop you know, from that standpoint. And we could, we could talk a lot about sort of the specifics, but in a nutshell, I think that's how it happened. So we are largely really being operated by our unconscious brain. We are the unconscious brain is the horse. The consciousness that we experience is, is us being the rider. But yet we do have the ability to train the unconscious brain. And if we don't like it, we can probably do something about it. We might even be able to train it to do things we want it to do. And you use the example of professional athletes as you as you talk about this concept. So tell us more about that. Yeah, you know, the first thing I want to say here is you know, you might be wondering if you're you're listening to this podcast you know, so who who are we actually? You know, are we our conscious mind? Are we on our unconscious brain processes? And the answer is, of course, you're both. You're both of these things. And one of the things I actually think is quite interesting is because our unconscious brain processes are directly in charge of our actions and our behaviors, most people actually experience you as your unconscious brain processes, which I think is what makes up your character, your personality, your sort of innate tendencies. But because all of us as sort of thinking beings are spending most of the time in our conscious mind, we think of ourselves as our conscious uh, mind. But we're really both, of course, when, all the time. Before we began this podcast, you and I were warming up a bit, and, and I said that you know, that that you are not in control of your of yourself, and you pointed out, well, you both your unconscious brain and your conscious brain are both you. So, no, you are. It's just you, 
we may not have a, a, a great understanding, at least until now, as to what you really is. Exactly. It, exactly right. So, you know, one way to think about what this paper is saying, one of its big implications is that the you who is you is mostly unconscious. It doesn't diminish you in any way. It just diminishes the fact that it's, it's, we're not always being in a deliberate, rational, conscious way. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, one of the, the powers of this information is that now that we understand that a lot of actually who we are is going on in our unconscious brain, we can use our unconscious brain to be our best selves and to perform at maximum potential. So when, whether it's musicians or athletes, talk about being in the zone, I am quite sure, and I think most athletes would agree with me, this is when you stop thinking consciously and you let your unconscious brain free to do what it believes are the best thing to do without your basically your conscious mind interfering with what your unconscious brain knows are exactly the right things to do. And this is particularly relevant in any sort of a fast-paced activity whether it's, you know, hitting a fastball in baseball or returning a serve in tennis or doing martial arts or playing uh, a particularly improvisational uh, music where there need to be split-second decisions that are simply too fast for the conscious mind. And all your conscious mind is going to do is screw them up. So you better to let your unconscious uh, loose. We talked about the, the matrix already, and now I'm going to give you a chance to talk about another one of your, your passions, which is Harry Potter. And, of course, uh, being an Andrew Budson paper, there is a reference to, uh, to Harry Potter, and in particular the character Neville Longbottom. So why did you mention him? Well, we mentioned Neville because it's a great example of someone who was able to consciously, deliberately overcome uh, a part of their character. So essentially, Neville, we argue, used his conscious mind to fix a character flaw that he saw in himself, which is that he had a little bit of cowardice uh, in him, and he was able to uh, overcome that. And, you know, as educators and clinicians in writing this paper, we firmly believe that people can overcome all sorts of difficulties, whether it's using cognitive behavioral uh, therapy or other strategies and techniques to change and improve oneself for the better. And uh, now we also have a different theory as to how the cowardly lion got his courage from the Wizard of Oz. I love that. Now you you also speak about consciousness in animals. So now we're really you know we're really getting into you know blow your mind kind of of territory. So, what are the implications of your work for animals? Yeah, it, it, it's sort of funny. It's like once we developed this theory, the implications, in my opinion, they all just fell out logically without any difficulties. And this is one of those in this category. If we are correct 
that consciousness is just part of this memory system, well, we actually understand the anatomy of the memory system. The anatomy of this memory system is the cerebral cortex, including a structure called uh, the hippocampus, which is involved in forming new uh, memories. And if that is the neuroanatomy for memory, and the neuroanatomy for memory, this type of memory, is the neuroanatomy for consciousness, we actually know which animals have this same neuroanatomical structure. And the short answer is it's all vertebrates, all vertebrates, any animals with a backbone, from fish to reptiles to birds to mammals, they all have the same organization. And so we argue they all have some form of consciousness. Now, when I talk about consciousness, and this is probably a good time to define it a little bit, I'm really talking about this subjective experience that we have. And whereas human beings can have very complex subjective experiences that can be verbalized and imagined in great detail, I think that other animals may have a much more simple awareness and they might just really be experiencing pleasure or pain or something like that. But I would argue, based on their neuroanatomy, that they are able to experience pleasure and pain and other simple emotions the way that we do. Andrew, you, 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 you mentioned other people's work that's either consistent with yours or on which you built your work. And, of course, much of your paper is novel. Are your theories, are these, are these theories proven? Do they require further investigation? They absolutely require uh, further investigation. And I'm actually very excited that we're gearing up to do some of the experiments to help prove them or, or work towards proof. So uh, they're definitely not proven yet. But, you know, I can't help thinking that the core of this theory that we propose in this paper is correct. And it's in part because it builds on the work of others, people like I've talked about, like Kahneman and Tversky, and the fact that this theory is consistent with the findings of researchers in other fields. Like I mentioned, this Australian researcher, Heinz Hogendorn, who actually came to very similar conclusions through a totally different field, through the field of perception. So I, I think they're likely to be correct, but they still require further proof. Thank you. Andrew, your son Danny has autism. You've been you've been public about that, and you have been a, a great advocate and fundraiser in that. Does his condition have an influence on the direction of your work? And I guess a related question is whether your work might even offer clues regarding conditions like autism. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, starting first with with Danny, uh, there's no doubt whatsoever that Dan, Danny's autism really helped me to develop this theory, and I, I give him credit for uh, some of the key insights. So Danny has severe classic 
Canner autism for people who are familiar with that term. He, he never pointed. He was unable to develop a language more than uh, a handful of words. He likes to spin, you know, he, he, really the classic severe autism. And unfortunately, he has, because he has difficulty expressing himself and his wants, he does have aggression and self-injurious behaviors. But you know, he's done well over the year through some good schools, including the New England Center for uh, Children, where he was for 20 years of his life, either in home-based programs, school-based programs, or residential programs. And he's now at another wonderful organization called Amigo as an adult. And uh, we're very pleased that, that he's there. But so Danny learns essentially by an, an unconscious form of memory called operant uh, conditioning. And it was the fact that I sort of was able to understand how Danny learned and how different it was from the learning that typical children would learn that helped to realize that this, this way that Danny is learning, it really is not just a, a learning disability, but it's really a, a memory system uh, problem. Mm. And, and so it, it, was, it was very important. And, you know, building on this, one of the fallouts of the paper is that, again, by understanding the anatomy of the memory systems, we postulated that there are many neurologic disorders of consciousness, including Alzheimer's and related dementias. Things like epilepsy, migraine auras are also deficits of consciousness. We theorized that schizophrenia and dissociative identity disorder may be disorders of, of consciousness. There's a lot of different disorders that I think about as a clinician. To quote one of our favorite, our joint favorite character is fascinating. <laughs> Fascinating. Absolutely. So, Andrew, you mentioned your 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 uh, your next book that you're working on. What's next for you and your work? Yeah. So, I'm actually focusing all of my writing and research efforts on trying to prove or disprove uh, this theory of uh, consciousness. So I'm actually working on a new book right now describing this theory in a little bit more detail and also explain how it uh, came about. Thank you so much. Seeking the Extraordinary presents Extraordinary Teachings, a deeper look at the qualities that allow people to do extraordinary things. I'm now going to ask you the same questions that I ask all of my guests. You are certainly in the category of extraordinary, and I would like to understand, as would our audience, what it is that makes you so extraordinary. Well, we know that it's your unconscious brain now, I guess. <laughs> exactly. So here's the first question. What's been your most satisfying accomplishment so far? Well, in my personal life, it's really been working with my wife to provide each of our children what they need to be successful in their own way. And Leah and Danny are two very different children, but I actually am pleased that I think that, again, working with my wife Amy, we've been able to give them what they need. In my professional life, I, I confess it, it's really been this paper, 
the completion of my three books for the public that we talked about. And I also have a, a textbook for clinicians on memory loss that's now in its third edition, been translated into Spanish, Portuguese, and uh, Japanese. And I, I do think it helps clinicians treat their patients to the best of their abilities. Great. Do you have any regrets? You know, I, I, I have many regrets. I, I'm always working on trying to improve myself in every way I can, and I think about how I could have done things better in many situations. So that's sort of a general answer. And, you, you know, the other thing that, that I regret, and I, it's going on like this, this week, is that I, I know I do too many things at once, and I regret that I cannot give as much time and attention to each individual thing that I'm, that I'm doing. And I know that sounds terrible, but that's, that's the truth. I'm, I'm sitting here as your friend and, and, and thinking about heroing that and say, oh, that's not really true, but, but that's your truth. And, uh, and I respect that. I understand. I understand that perspective. I can't say it's completely unfamiliar to me in my own circumstances. Yes, I'm sure. What single tip would you offer that has helped you be your most extraordinary? So if you have a a passion, a dream, a vision, it's so important that you don't give up on it and don't be passive about it. You know, don't wait for it to just happen. You know, uh, wishing on a star is is good, but you, you you can work to make it come about, you know. So think about, strategize, how can I make this passion, this vision, this dream into reality. And if you get stuck, don't just get stuck, you know, find out how to figure out what the next step is, you know, talk to others. And if you're somebody who you don't really feel you have a dream or something you're passionate about, I would recommend you spend some time with yourself and you think about how can you best contribute to the world in a positive, meaningful way. Well, other than that, what's the best (laughs) advice you've ever given or received? Yeah. So, you know, I I actually, I think it's not being afraid to change your mind about something with presented Mm -hmm. with new information. I think so many people just get stuck once they've expressed their views on a topic, they think they can't change it. But I think that's just silly. So I say, be courageous, admit you were uninformed or, or just plain wrong. Love that. Had a guest recently who was talking about how this concept of flip-flopping and how we demonize it, it's not such a bad thing. I love that. Okay, what have been your biggest mistakes or learning opportunities? Yeah, so very early on when I started in a leadership role, I, I realized that there were basically three reason that led me to make uh, bad decisions. One was when I was rushing and not taking my time. Another was when I didn't consult others on an important decision. And a third was that I didn't take the time to make sure I had all the information, whether it was enough data or both sides of the story. And what's really interesting in light of this interview is that I now know this is when I was making, you know, fast, system one, Mm -hmm. unconscious decisions rather than the slow, deliberative, logical, rational system two decisions. 
Yeah, it's such a useful construct. I find myself evaluating everything in, the, in that context. Andrew, who are your key role models and mentors? I'm actually glad you, you asked me about that because at, at Haverford College, I had two very special professors. So I double majored in philosophy and chemistry, and, and both of my uh, mentors were, were key. R.E.A. Cosman was my philosophy professor and guided my, my senior research in philosophy, and Claude Wintner was my chemistry professor and guided my research there. Mm-hmm. And I do want to give a shout-out to my uh, current boss at VA Boston. He's the chief of staff, and his name is uh, Dr. Michael Charnas, and he's really been a wonderful uh, mentor and has taught me a lot about uh, leadership. Okay, two more questions, and these are the big ones. The first one, do you have a personal mission? You know, I I absolutely do. And it's basically to communicate through books and blogs and interviews and podcasts to empower people with the knowledge so that they can be the best people they can be in relation to what I know something about, in relation to memory and memory disorders. Excellent. That's, that's, That's great. And lastly, what do you hope your legacy will be? Yeah, so begin with the end in mind, right, in the words of of the great Stephen Covey. Stephen Covey, that's right. Yeah, and so, you know, I really uh, do hope that I will be remembered as a good father, husband, son, friend, physician, mentor, teacher, scientist, and writer. Thank you for that. And love the reference to the seven habits. It was actually, for, for our, our listeners who have heard me talk about the seven habits, it was actually Dr. Andrew Budson who recommended that I read that book. And that is the extraordinary Andrew Budson. Thank you, Andrew. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mike. You can learn more about Andrew online at andrewbudsonmd.com. And by reading his extraordinary books, including Seven Steps to Managing Your Memory and Six Steps to Managing Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia. You can also join me in following Andrew on Twitter at ABudson and on LinkedIn. And thank you to our sponsor, The Colony Group. The Colony Group is a national wealth and business management company with offices across the country that itself seeks the extraordinary as it pursues its unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about The Colony Group and how it manages beyond money, visit thecolonygroup.com. You can also follow The Colony Group on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Colony Group. For Seeking the Extraordinary, I'm Michael Nathanson. Follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Nathanson underscore MJ to learn more about my ongoing search for the extraordinary.